Guardian angels and patron saints, pray for us. Well, when I arrived here four years ago, we commemorated the centennial of a very important day in in the history of the world. It happened to be the 100-year anniversary of the beginning of the First World War. And today, we celebrate the culmination of that day, the centennial today of the signing of the armistice that put an end to the conflict of the First World War. 11 a.m. on November 11th, 1918. Now, uh, I sort of decided to make it my hobby to try to follow the chronology of the First World War and try to read and study as these years have gone by, and four and a half years later. Uh, I've learned a lot. I found the First World War a very difficult thing to, to understand. I really knew nothing about it prior to my decision to just knuckle down and, and learn. So I listened to podcasts, I read books, I, I read essays and watched films, documentaries. And it has changed me in, in many ways. Uh, you could say I'm a World War I enthusiast. I, don't, I didn't realize this, but um, I grew up in Kansas City, and the Liberty Memorial is the National World War I Memorial. The tower there just to the, to the um, north and east of the plaza. I went to that museum, learned about the history, dove into it, allowed it to really sink in, the imagination of what it would have been like to have been alive during a time when the most civilized region of the world descended into chaos and violence and mechanized death a kind of mutual suicide pact that the countries of Europe and their, by extension, their colonies threw themselves into. I've reviewed the statistics, seen the maps, and tried to imagine what it would have been like, for instance, to have been alive in the United Kingdom, where of all the men aged 18 to 35, one in three of them died in that conflict. Over 700,000 deaths of um, the British people. Remembering and learning about names of places that are inscribed now in the halls of death, Verdun, Ypres, Gallipoli, the Somme. What would it have been like to be present at a battle where 60,000 people died in a single day? When death was so certain and implacable that armies had to had to turn their guns on their own soldiers to keep them from running away from certain death. And how the enemy would, would stop firing because it was so sickening to them to just mow down line after line of hapless soldiers that are being thrown out into harm's way, only to be cut down by bullets and artillery shells. To me... Entering into that world imaginatively uh, isn't a pleasant process, but I found it very helpful. Learning about the First World War, of course, um, it's, it's a difficult war to understand. It's, in some sense, the least interesting. There's much more dramatic wars, the Second World War, the Vietnam War, easy to enter into imaginatively. But the impact of the First World War can, can hardly be overestimated from the crumbling of those colonial European empires 
to the rise of totalitarianism, to the rise of American hegemony in the world, to the wristwatch. All of these things cast a long shadow into the present, and they will continue to do so for many, many years. It's much easier in other conflicts to see a clear sense of evil. The story of the Second World War is, is much easier to enter into, to recognize the necessity to rise up and push back against the evils that were present. It's easier to feel good about the Second World War. But the First World War, whose conclusion we memorialize today, well, it actually presents to us the far deeper lessons of history, and ultimately ones that give us the means to receive the gospel more fruitfully, I believe. Studying this great war, as it was referred to by those who had never lived through anything like it before, gives you the impression that, as one historian put it, never have so many sacrificed so much for so little. Studying how Europe more or less miscalculated and overextended itself into the most destructive conflict the world had ever seen, it offers us something far more important to offer us real wisdom than maybe other conflicts where light versus dark and that heroic narrative is so much clearer. The truth is, wars are avoidable, but we rarely avoid them. Certainly that was the case with the First World War. And I believe that this terrible catastrophe was in a real way self-inflicted. I think any student of the 20th century would be forced to draw this conclusion again and again. All of the worst things that have happened to us are self-inflicted. Why did those people do the things that they did? Would we have done anything differently if we had been alive then? Would we have had the courage to resist the, the sweeping trends that led to the trenches, that led to the concentration camps, that led to the gulag, or that led to Jim Crow, or any of the other tragedies that define our self-inflicted wounds. And the churches don't appear to be exempt from this dynamic either. In the First World War, it was the churches that had spread the rumors of German atrocities during their invasion of Belgium. The churches became a part of the propaganda machine, demonizing the enemy and thereby incentivizing the attempts to do whatever was necessary. They invested war with sacred purpose and responsibility on both sides. When another set of atrocities, grounded far more in reality, not in rumor, those atrocities perpetrated by the German people on the Jews and other undesirables, when those truths became known, people were far less willing to believe them because they'd been burned so badly before. And so Auschwitz and Buchenwald and Dachau and so many others were able to continue that diabolical work. The churches had been chastened and they'd lost their credibility. I bring all of this up 
in the context of our second reading today because I believe it has ultimately, for Christians, a theological conclusion. First, as we look at the history of the 20th century, to believe in the myth of progress, in the power of reason and sensibility to increase our lifespan and to bring about a more just and peaceful world, either isn't paying attention or are willfully ignorant. There is, no, there is no progress. We've undone our progress again and again, one step forward, two steps back. Our most dire catastrophes, again, are of our own making. And we as a race seem unable to avoid what seems avoidable. We're unable to bring sense to what is senseless. We're unable to think through what's clearly irrational. And so it is that we hear the words of St. Paul. Christ, offered once to take away the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to take away sin, but to bring salvation to those who eagerly await him. The Spanish translate this as those who place their hope in him. Not in our self-appointed abilities to make things better, to work things through, to compromise and dialogue. All those things are good, but they all fall short. They all fail eventually, despite our best intentions. These final weeks of the liturgical year are really meant to point us to the fulfillment of our hopes, of what we ourselves are incapable of bringing about by our own efforts. That as we look at the grim toll of the 20th century, we ought not expect anything different in the 21st or those that follow. The only reason we expect something different is that we do have hope in the Lord's return. The long cycle of one step forward, two steps back will not continue forever. You know, it's a commonplace thing nowadays among the cultured despisers of religion to mock Christians as people who look to heaven or the afterlife for their satisfaction and reward. That they can't deal with the terms of this world. That they can't deal with the prospect of their own death. And they shirk their duty to make this world a better place by placing their hopes in the next. All this talk of pie in the sky. But it seems to me that a strong historical memory can help us recognize that when death and destruction and chaos reign and we are powerless to escape them, it's precisely our hope in Christ that allows us to continue and to be a light, to offer our self-sacrifice, to offer our service to the world, despite the fact that it seems hopeless in the end and none of it matters. That takeaway from the 20th century, many, many came to that conclusion. The First World War, more than any other conflict, brought disillusionment and disenchantment to the, to the people of Europe who had placed their hope in the, the progress of civilization to improve the lives of everyone under whom they lived. But the fact is, we have our hope elsewhere. That is our contribution 
And though we live comfortable lives now, we're all too aware, punctuated as, as it is with, uh, the, the headlines are punctuated with these stories of, of strange atrocities bubbling up from the depths. These things continually present themselves to our mind. And we have to draw the same conclusion. In the context of our memorial today, I end with a simple phrase, looking back to that idea that never did so many sacrifice so much in order to gain so little. We Christians believe that we're not foolish to give what we cannot keep in order to gain what we cannot lose. This is the widow's might. This is the little handful of flour that's been entrusted to us that we give back to the Lord as an act of faith. We don't place our hope in the efforts of our political order or our social order or the justice system to bring about what we know we need. The only way we receive it is from Christ. and We place our hope in him individually and as a people. Come, Lord Jesus, save us from ourselves. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.